Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. Hit that subscribe button, write a review, help us grow. Today in the booth, we got two guests. We got Eliza Orleans uh, joining us again, and we have a new guest, State Senator Alessandra Biaggi. We get into all of the topics, including the courts and Amy Coney Barrett being sworn in, um, the difference between federal and state responsibilities, and then also just general feelings being six days out from the election. Listen up. You take it away. All right. Eliza, welcome back. Welcome back. We're excited to have you. You're like the perfect person for this time, kind of getting right into it. Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed. I think it was this week. And she was, it was a really contentious appointment. Um, she got through like we all thought she would with the 5248 vote. What are your thoughts on just the process, but also her experience? Well, first of all, it's always great to be here with you too. You know, I adore you and I wish we were chatting under, you know, less dark circumstances, which hopefully the next time we speak, we will be. But, you know, Amy Coney Barrett is a right-wing ideologue who has sworn to uphold biblical justice over the rule of law. She is, she has called abortion always immoral. She has ruled in favor of upholding restrictions to abortion access. She will take away a woman's right to choose. She's a disaster for human rights, for criminal justice, for LGBTQIA folks. And, you know, I mean, she, I think, has no place on the Supreme Court. And so I think this week really showed how completely morally bankrupt a number of the, you know, the Republican Party is. And I myself am devastated, but, you know, woke up the next day and was like, all right, now we have to fight back. Do you think it was the right kind of play by the Dems? Because uh, you know, as an outsider looking in, it seemed to them that they're like, they have the votes no matter what, and we're going to look bad if we really flare this thing up and really get in the weeds. At the same time, you know, I, I couldn't help but be like, wow, that happened so quickly. And I just don't even feel like they put up a fight, but maybe they did and it just wasn't covered. How, how do you feel about that part? I really wanted them to fight harder. I wanted them to do whatever it took to, you know, try to block this to really show how illegitimate this process was. You know, the the fact that they pushed this through so quickly is just, I mean, it's it's abhorrent. And and I think that there's so much more I wish that 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 the Democrats had done to really show the American people how how completely illegitimate this process was. So I was, yeah, I was pretty upset about that. Yeah, one of the things that's made me think about is it's really like the filibuster is, I want it in total, I want the filibuster gone. But one of the things that uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did in 2017 when confirming Gorsuch was uh, change the rules so that the Senate minorities team can't use a filibuster when Supreme Court justices are being confirmed. So with that rule being changed in 2017, it's something we really could have used this time. Mm -hmm. But overall, I have really just not great thoughts about the filibuster if you think about it in the past in the sort of conservative block in the senate blocking civil rights legislation um, i want to go on in total but we could have used it this time i mean what are your thoughts on the filibuster and the supreme court stuff in general well first of all 
we need to end the filibuster. I mean, it basically has stood in the way of, you know, true, true democracy. I think, you know, in order to protect our democracy, we must end the filibuster. But yes, if there has, if there were ever a time that we could have used it, it would have been now. This feels kind of like another also just electoral college situation. And the only reason I say that is the House wasn't represented, right? <laughs> the Senate was, which backs into once again, kind of more of the same. I think I just read that 17 million less people were represented mm-hmm. by the 52 senators that voted for. And I haven't been able to figure it out, but I don't know if you know, and it's okay if you don't, but why the House isn't even a part of this conversation. But once again, it seems that the Republicans just always really know where they can strike, even where they have this vast power imbalance, this being just another you know, piece of that puzzle. A hundred percent. And I mean, basically, our country is held hostage by a small group of extremists, and it is not representative democracy. It is not representative of the will of the American people. And yet here we are with all of these things that just... It just keeps getting worse. You know, the Republican obstruction only continues to uphold and perpetuate wildly unpopular policies and, you know, judges. Yeah, it's and there's just a long legacy of that, obviously. So with this confirmation going through, if the Dems win the presidency and if they win the Senate and keep the House, should they expand the court? I know that you tweeted that you were down for that. But what's what's your thinking behind that? You know, the history of the Supreme Court, it's there's nowhere does it say how many justices there should be on the Supreme Court. And that number has changed throughout history. So there's no reason why we should not expand the court. Um, I think it's the you know, I, I don't like the phrase pack the court that people have been using, because, in fact, if you think about it, what the Republicans have done is pack the court. And what we want to do is unpack it. And so I think that it's it's critical that we, you know, take immediate action to expand the court, assuming the Dems win everything. Should the process always be this way where, you know, it's an executive branch decision or, it, or are there other countries that do it differently? Oh, that's a good question about other countries. I'm, I don't know that I have the answer to that, but I think that at least here, you know, we now have the ability to, I mean, assuming we win, uh, we'll have the ability to restore the court's integrity and it is our obligation to do so. And I think we, you know, the Dems have to use every option on the table, which includes expanding the court given that there are no, you know, requirements or regulations or, you know, designation of how many justices there should be. What do you think? Should there be term limits? For Supreme Court justices? You know, there are discussions as to whether there should be term limits. And I'm not sure, you know, what, like, there are so many different plans. And actually, Pete Buttigieg had a really good plan that he put out with regards to what he would do with the Supreme Court. And it was something along the lines of, you know, I think it was 15 justices, five on each side, and five neutral justices who came through on a rotating basis. So it's not like, oh, you're forced into retirement. It's just you cycle back into circuit courts. And I think that those five would have to be unanimously agreed upon by the other 10. And if they could not agree on five neutral justices, then the Supreme Court would just not hear any cases that term. So there would be like a huge incentive for them to to come to an agreement. 
And I think then those judges, those justices would come through on like two-year rotating terms. And those two-year terms would be decided two years in advance so that you didn't know which cases were like on their way up to the Supreme Court. And I think that there are so many interesting proposals in out there that there's certainly a way to do it that figures in, you know, that just would make it more just as opposed to these lifetime appointments getting someone like Amy Coney Barrett, who's extremely young, who will be on the, the you know, this is this is irreparable. This damage is is irreparable. Um, not to mention all the federal judges who've been who've been appointed. I mean, that idea, of course, makes way too much sense. But you know, our, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about Mitch in a bit, but. This yeah, is a power hope- gain to them. He's the ultimate power gra- grab. And this has been yeah. something, mm-hmm. you know, they've been dreaming about since the 80s. This, is, mm-hmm. this isn't this is just something that mm-hmm. they were planning overnight. And they got the whole game. I mean, they have justices now for 10, 20, 30 years. So there's no reason for them to want to reverse anything. They, they have they have it where they want it. Oh, 100%. You know, that, that it, like... I remember during Kavanaugh, during the Kavanaugh nomination and people were, oh my God, they're so upset about Kavanaugh. And it was like, people, this is not just about Brett Kavanaugh. This is about the fact that Trump is packing the federal courts with unqualified extremists and Mitch McConnell is letting it happen. And like, you know, I mean, pushing it through and like taking back the Senate matters so much because we have to stop. Like, I mean, it's just these judges. It just is so, I mean, judges should be held to the highest ethical standards. And, you know, we we now have unqualified extremists who have these appointments for a very long time. Yeah, it's, that brings me to, you know, is McConnell the real mastermind we should have been worried about this entire time since the Senate took over in, what was it, 2010? Uh, early on in Obama's presidential administration. I mean, obviously with the census going on and the, and the congressional districts being redrawn, but the courts thing and him just kind of holding over a bunch of court appointments to Trump's administration that had been left over from Obama's. I mean, that I didn't realize how much or to what degree that was planned or to what effect that had. I mean, even with Amy Coney Barrett, reaching to the Supreme Court, she was appointed to a lower court first, but not just her, a lot of other judges who have never tried cases before had been appointed to federal right. judgeships. Like, and this has been going on for years. And I think under the radar for, I mean, I, I wasn't paying a, a ton of attention to it with, because this wasn't news like it was before. Stuff. No, no. This, this wasn't what? news in the way that it is now. I mean, they did a pretty masterful right. <laughs> job of just, getting this stuff through when people weren't paying attention. And the problem is there's so many major issues at all times. It's, it's just, it's hard to illuminate everything, but in hindsight, we're, we're looking more like they, they've packed this for decades and decades. I mean, exactly. I, I think I, I read that there's not even like certain circuit court judgeships even available to be nominated, even if Biden were to win. Correct. They've really, this is, you know, they have not a single empty seat, I think on, on any of these courts and, you know, it's so interesting when you actually think about it because Trump himself is often, I mean, he's reckless, he's unpredictable. However, when it came to the courts, he let Mitch McConnell run the show and Mitch ran it in a way that was methodical and calculating. And with his, you know, right-wing overlords, he truly flooded the judicial system with these narrow-minded lawyers who work for the wealthy and well-connected and who have 
not tried cases who are fundamentally unqualified and who are just these ideologues who will just now be there for for such a long time and and this now having supreme court nominees who will i mean or sorry supreme court justices who will deliver a death blow to the affordable care act and rip health care away from millions of people during a deadly pandemic i mean this is devastating what do you think so sorry to be so dark no no it's, <laughs> no i mean it's it's real it's warranted i would say ed and i are hopeful of what will happen next week but to the point that we're talking about when it comes to the courts and this is why i wanted to pull my hair out and just yell at 2016 when so many people were like it doesn't matter and even in 2018 i mean there's still always going to be Yo, people that, that whole doesn't matter, matter. it's or crazy people saying oh no this is good this wakes us all up like no, this, is a, this is 20 to 30 plus years no. of damage. I mean, this is people's lifetimes. This is overturning Roe v. Wade. And I had friends who, who even said to me a handful of years ago, yeah, five years ago, oh, Roe v. Wade would never be overturned. That can't happen. And it was just, it showed such a fundamental lack of understanding as to what could play out. And now the worst has played out. It has completely played out. And, you know, listen, are rich, are rich women still going to have the ability to get abortions if they need them? Of course, because they'll come to states like New York and Connecticut and wherever and go mobility. and get abortions if they need them. But it's going to go back to, you know, illegal back alley abortions that are going to kill, you know, poor women, black and brown women, like people who have less privilege. Like it is truly like this is real now. And now we have to face the repercussions of this and we have to fight back. Yeah. How, how does this play in on, on like this, the state level, you know, that obviously you're aiming for, you know, with some of these appointments, where, where do these things kind of go back and forth? Because we always hear, you know, there's obviously massive states rights and a lot of the federal stuff doesn't necessarily implicate, but where do those, these, some of these things play along? Well, there are some states in which these things have been codified into law, like New York. I mean, abortion's not going to become illegal in New York. It's, it's just simply not. But in other states where they don't have, you know, Democrats elected to their, to their state legislatures, they will have the ability to, to make these decisions when, when it's overturned by the Supreme Court that really penalize people. It's terrifying. If Dems take over all of the power centers in government, should we try and have a constitutional convention? Should we get an amendment? Like, what do you think? How do we solidify Roe v. Wade in a way that's bulletproof? That's a good question. I think that, I don't know, I think a constitutional convention has its own challenges. You know, I think that there are people who've been very in favor of a con-con and then others who are, who are not. And there are legitimate reasons for that. But I think the thing that we need to focus on is, you know, down-ballot races. Local elections matter. I mean, I, I think I say that a lot. I tweeted a lot, all in caps, but it, it really is so true. And I know you guys are speaking to a local elected official today, uh, and she's incredible, and we're so lucky to have her. And, you know, Senator Biagi will tell you about how she has been able to affect laws and how that really plays out. She's better to speak to that than I am, but, but it really matters when we elect people on a local level because they're the people who do make these, these really critical decisions for so many people. And I think that, you know, we hear, and I, I know we're gonna go into this, but I think we hear about, oh, this place is a red state, this place is a red state, we'll never be able to, you know, elect Democrats in these states. But 
there are some really, really interesting things going on. Like, for example, Texas. People say Texas is a red state. Texas is in the toss-up category, first of all, right now. And Texas has never really been a red state. Texas has been a voter suppression state, a extremely low turnout state, and Texas could be a blue state. So if, you know, if we really push voter registration, voter turnout, and kind of in part upon people just how much these local elections matter, you know, we could, we can make some real changes on the local level, which will protect people. Beautiful segue. Yeah. Texas is, I like how you put that. It was, it's never been a, a red state. It's been a voter suppression state. It's been a state held hostage by the power cartel. Mm-hmm. So you look at some of the newly categorized toss up states that Trump won in 2016. Texas is a huge one, but also Georgia, Iowa and Ohio, right? I mean, Georgia, just mm-hmm. like all hail Stacey Abrams, mm-hmm. this is not happening without her and her flood of support. They added 800,000 voters to the roll. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it is still a, a pretty, there's some pretty scary things going on in Georgia in terms of voter suppression. And, you know, the Georgia election, Stacey's election was a tragedy for our democracy. You know, the Republicans suppressed the vote. I mean, in a way that is just, it's unfathomable and they will they will stop at nothing to suppress the vote of especially communities of color and that is you know that's not democracy but i do think that that stacy has worked so hard fair fight has worked so hard to really get people out make sure they're not purged from the roles and and you know now georgia's in play it's really incredible what are your thoughts on obviously these types of states for Biden's prospects are really good and important, but also, you know, as we've been talking about at the state legislator level or, you know, that, but, but also Senate seats. What are some of the Senate races that are interesting to you? I mean, there's a lot of toss-up Senate races right now, right? I, I'm, I love Mark Kelly. You know, I know that Arizona wasn't one of the states you, you listed, but I'm like a huge, huge, huge fan of Mark Kelly. And it looks really good for Mark. And so that is super exciting. I think that Jamie Harrison, you know, is so exciting because Lindsey Graham is truly a monster. Some of the other Senate races I'm watching. Um, yeah, I mean, South Carolina. God, they're so- yeah, I mean, I donated to, to the Jamie Harrison because, you know, she, Elizabeth Warren's, I'm still part of Elizabeth Warren's listserv. And she was kind mm-hmm, of- Me too. Uh, right? Yeah, exactly. So she's like, oh, donate to the team, donate to Jamie's. So I, uh, I I did, and now I get all these Jamie texted emails, and it's such a millennial speak, by the way. It's pretty hilarious. I mean, me being a recruiter and trying to think about how to best cold email and source candidates, I feel like I'm being sourced mm-hmm. by Jamie for funds. And he's using some of the same tactics that I use, which is crazy, and it's kind of annoying, and I kind of feel like, oh, man, maybe I should you know, let up on the candidates that I source. But that's that's obviously a ramble. But Jamie is, yeah, South Carolina would be insane. I mean, unbelievable. He's such a superhero. And uh, I don't know if you saw that ad. He, like, loves comics. And they did this incredible ad with the comic book. You know, he, he uh, it's really it's really a beautiful one. If, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. So how are you feeling overall, Eliza? You know, what are we... There's been so much analysis over the months, this whole year. It's we're days away. And there's already there's already been the highest early voting turnout in American history, I believe. Mm-hmm. So will that carry through to Election Day? Um, 
How you feeling? Listen, I had someone call call me uh, recently say that I was a relentless optimist, and I love that description of myself. I think I think that that is a great way to talk about how I feel about this. Like I think I have to work at my optimism. Like I think I, I constantly feel hopeful, which is what enables me to wake up every day and be like, okay, here's how we're going to fight. Here's what we're going to do today. This is how we're going to make change because you have to believe that it's possible. But also I think the relentlessness is because there is trepidation. You know, is it, is, is it possible that we won't win the presidency, won't take the Senate? I mean, you know, that, that, I, I mean, I think Mark Kelly is going to win. I think John Hickenlooper is going to win. I think Teresa Greenfield has a great shot. I think, you know, there are so many, so many people out there who like really those seem like they're locked up, but like, you know, is it going to take a lot to take down some of these other terrible ones? Yeah, it will. And so I am relentlessly optimistic. I will keep fighting, fighting to protect votes. I've been working with a group of amazing people. Some are Obama administration, a former congressman, someone from the Lincoln Project, and we created a tool called Don't F With My Vote or Don't Fuck With My Vote. Um, and if, so if you go to don'tfwithmyvote.org, you can record and protect your vote. And it's a nonpartisan tool. We're just telling people to go there and you know take a photo of their ballot, geolocate it, put in the real-time data so that if there are issues, we know what, the, what they are and they're transmitted in real time. So, you know, this is all just, we all just have to keep waking up every day and fighting and hoping to protect our democracy. Eliza, keep, keeping it light as we, we, we finish up here, we see you're wearing the gamer headphones and we, we, we want to maybe make an announcement here. Are you going to be joining uh, Twitch? Are you going to be live streaming with contingents here? Wow. Well, I wasn't expecting to make the announcement today, <laughs> but you know what? Now that you ask, people should definitely look out because I think we're going to do a Twitch stream. So if anyone wants to join our Among Us game, I have gotten really good at it. I, I won the game as an as the single imposter the other night. Seven players and I was the only imposter and I took it all the way home. So I'm enjoying it. I, I think it's a lot of fun. It's like it's like the gamer aspect, which I never really got into, but it's like this kind of werewolf type mafia game where you're you have to like pretend not to be the imposter and try and kill people. All right, Ed, we, we we've got marching orders. We get we've got to get our game up. We we've never played, but uh we've been sitting on the sidelines interested to get get in. So Eliza, always a pleasure having you on. Uh, and as you kind of said it from the beginning, hopefully when we have you back, uh, it will be in lighter times. I know, fingers crossed. And hopefully we will be celebrating soon. And then of course, you know, I have to say for also that the fight is not over. No matter what happens on November 3rd, the fight is not over. Um, local elections matter, as we've talked about when I've been on the pod before. I'm running for Manhattan District Attorney and I'm running against Democrats. And just because someone's a Democrat, it doesn't mean that they're a person who's going to look out for people, who's going to fight for the marginalized communities in our cities. And, you know, what we need is desperately is real criminal justice reform to take on the inequities that exist in our system. All day. All right, everyone. Eliza Orleans, she's running for Manhattan DA. Go check her out. Go Also go back and listen to our last pod with her to learn more. And we'll have more with, from you soon, hopefully uh, <laughs> without the apocalypse happening over here. All right, we're just going to jump into it. We know we got a little time, but we have like so much we want to talk with you. And so for everyone, we have New York State Senator Alessandra Biaggi joining us. Uh, we're super pumped to have her on. 
And I mean, there's so many different places we want to start, but I think we just need to give like a little bit of quick framework because she jumped onto the scene in 2018. She beat former ranking state Senator Jeff Klein. It was a very high profile election. Um, But why don't you give just maybe like the quick on that and why that was such an important election. And then we can maybe jump forward to where we are right now. I would love to do that. And thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm excited to talk to you about all the different topics that are important right now. So I ran in 2018 against my predecessor. His name was Jeff Klein. He was the head of this rogue group of Democrats, also turncoat group of Democrats, which means basically that they like ran as Democrats, elected as Democrats, but then they caucused with Republicans, giving Republicans a majority. The importance of the race was that this group, giving the Republicans an effective majority, blocked legislation that we actually passed a majority of in 2019. Things like codifying Roe v. Wade, which I don't even have to emphasize why that is so important, especially today, after Amy Coney Barrett was sworn into the Supreme Court in you know just a matter of weeks. Things like the DREAM Act, which gave undocumented immigrants access to higher education, the most aggressive climate protection in the country, sexual harassment protections, a whole host of bills and legislation and policies that had been blocked for 10 years because of my predecessor in this group of turncoat Democrats. And so, you know, it was a long shot race. And like many people in 2018 and beyond, I ran knowing that it would be an uphill battle. I had really like an army of people. And that was the currency that we ran on. Um, We didn't have the war chest that my predecessor did. He had $3 million. We had $250,000. And yet on election day in 2018, we beat him by 10 points. And so it was the beginning of the blue wave in, Al- in Albany. It's like the, you know, the phrase that's becoming kind of cliched, of, of course, but it was. And Albany still has a lot of transformation to do. However, it, it really did break the dam in a way that we are never going to be able to go back from, which is a good thing. We want to break the dam because Albany is very corrupt. So that was a very, it was a very cool race. It was a very scary race. It was like a street fight. And yet it was really also very um, formative for me as a legislator today, because a lot of what I face is resistance from everybody about changing anything. Nobody wants to change the status quo. Um, There's a very small group of us that want to do that. But as I'm sure you saw, we have a lot of new, even, even more new people coming into the legislature in 2021. And so, you know, this to me is just a sign that like we're never going back to what it was, which is good for all New Yorkers. Is the IDC rooted out? Is it is it is it gone? The IDC, which is the acronym for Independent Democratic Conference, is gone. On the first day of the legislative session in 2019, we passed a rule to basically eliminate it from the rules because that was how they were official. And they're gone, even though we had two surviving members, one of whom actually ran for Congress this year and lost his seat in the Senate, which is just is, <laughs> I guess that's karma. Um, but we have one surviving member and her name is Diane Savino and she uh, represents Staten Island and she actually dated or dates my predecessor. So that's the, that's the sole member, but she's no longer part of that group. Dating, their room. oh my God, so many layers. <laughs> so- <laughs> There's so many things. I know. I know. I'm trying to be as as um, respectful as possible. The right. I remember the codifying of Roe v. Wade in 2019. 
Yes, and with Amy Coney Barrett sworn in, Roe v. Wade just nationally is like in peril. So are there other states that you know of that have codified it the way we have, or is that a unique thing? Not that I know of. I wouldn't be surprised if California has already done that, primarily because California beats New York, and I am very competitive in that regard, but California usually is ahead of the curve from New York. I don't know that they've done this, but what I will say is that if we didn't do that in 2019 or even in 2020, but we did it in 2019, what that would effectively mean is that if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, which is highly likely, and by the way, in 2018 when I ran, I ran because of th this bill was like the bill that took me off of my seat to do this because I worked on it as a lawyer for the governor in New York. And I thought this was like the easiest bill that could possibly pass in a state like New York that's so progressive. And it not only did it not pass, it was blocked from passing. It, was ne it didn't have a chance unless we got rid of the people who were blocking it, which we did. So it, it is now, I think, probably more than ever, the mo one of the most important things that we did and that we could have done. And what it really means too, is that now we have become this sanctuary reproductive health state for women, not just in New York, but from other places, because what will happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned at the Supreme Court level is states will start to pass all kinds of policies and regulations to make it practically impossible to access reproductive health care. And we already have seen that in places like Alabama and Mississippi and, this, and a lot of states in the South, but we will see it take a fever pitch in an unfortunate way. So you talked about California, for better or worse, sometimes being ahead of New York. And Ed and I were talking about this a little bit before, but you've been, you know, definitely at times an outspoken critic of the governor. And, you know, he has been heralded in, and I would say most of the, the mainstream press are doing a really great job with, with COVID. The right says he's done a terrible job. You know, my gut is that he was a few weeks late and that cost, ten, you know, a lot and thousands of lives. And the reason I started with California is they shut down, I think two weeks before we did, probably with the same data points. So to me, while I think once he got going, I think he did a great job, I, but I'm curious from you being more in the weeds, how, how would you rate uh, his performance overall when it comes to COVID? Your instinct is right. He delayed in, in shutting down and I would rate his performance at about a two. And that's not because I don't think that he did good things once he shut down, but his delay cost us thousands of lives. And in at the end of February, early March, um, the, as I'm sure you probably remember, and it's, by the way, unfortunately, the drama is still out playing out in the media. And I think a lot of people are just kind of sick of seeing it. But the drama between the, the mayor and the governor and this just bickering that goes on on a regular basis, instead of this coming together to say, we are going to lead the state and the city in a, in a way that makes people feel safe instead of confused or scared. And in, in, at the end of February, early March, there was a drumbeat by the governor that we weren't going to shut down. We didn't need to shut down, that it was crazy to shut down. Behind the scenes, he was saying that the mayor who was calling for shutdown, it was like the one thing that Mayor de Blasio did right was to say, let's shut down the city. And I was like, yes, this is great. But the governor wanted to be in control. And so the the antithesis of Cuomo is, is Newsom in California, which you highlighted, because Newsom, what he did was he gave it, 
he, he deferred to the localities. So there's one really great ProPublica article where you're, they're surveying like who, who did what well, and Newsom reached out to the mayor of San Francisco and said, you know your city best. You decide the time that you need to shut down. You decide what the order should be. And that to me is probably why California was able to get it right get it right within the bounds of chaos, which we know, you know, nobody really knew what to do, even though I could argue that everybody should have known what to do because the rest of the world was dealing with this. It came to Washington state to that nursing home and we were on notice and yet we did not take precautions or do anything, including the, the mandate of masks until much later on. And so the reason why I gave the governor a two is because of that, the, the, the delay in shutdown, the, really like flip attitude when it came to what this was. Governors don't do pandemics. That is a crazy thing to say. Not only because a governor should be prepared for anything, but especially the governor of New York, which the governor of New York is someone who's not only governing New York, but is also tuned, fine-tuned to the rest of the world because New York is the epicenter of travel and business for almost every country. The reason why I also give him a two is because of his nursing home order, which he issued, saying that COVID positive nursing home patients are required to be readmitted to nursing homes. That cost us 6,000 lives that we know of, but we know it is more. And I say that we know of because what the governor refuses to share are the accurate nursing home deaths. Why? because they're not counting. If you are a nursing home patient in the hospital, they're not counting that as a death if you died there. But it is a death in a nursing home because you live in a nursing home. That is your home. And so that was a way to reduce the numbers and to really craft this very creative narrative that he has been masterful at doing, which is why People in other states are like, I wish my governor was Andrew Cuomo. And a lot of us in New York state are like, can we please get a new governor? Because it's, it's damning and it's damaging and it's, it's scary to have gone through what we went through and, and to have people in positions like that not have integrity around such clear problems and failures because part of being a leader is also taking accountability for when you fail. And had they done that, had they said, we messed up, that was a terrible order, we're gonna get the numbers right, that would have been a different stance. But instead of doing that, they doubled down. The Department of Health Commissioner came to testify at Senate hearings and was not able to share information that is basic, like how many people died in nursing homes, and also refused to be earnest about what the process was to even come to the conclusion of creating that executive order. And so what I have just found from this branch of government is a constant drumbeat of lies, but it's not just lies in the sense that lying is bad, lies that actually lead to loss of life. That to me is absolutely unacceptable. So I'm, I'm guessing you are not endorsing his book, <laughs> his, his manual on how to survive a pandemic. I'm guessing you're not going to buy a, cop, a I mean, copy. Was that the worst timing um, of a book ever released when we're still going through something? I mean, I just mean, the tone deafness of it's unbelievable. It is actually, and it's unbelievable. And it's, it's not, we're not even in halftime, right? And so just pause for a second. We ha New York state has had the, lar the largest number of deaths in the entire 
world per capita. Why would you write a book on how to successfully handle COVID? We did not successfully handle COVID. We might have brought the curve down like a lot of other places, but we delayed so much that people died in a way that was unprecedented across the world. I, and, and this whole argument, by the way, about density, density is a factor. It is not necessarily determinative, right? So what am I talking about? A lot of, of leaders were saying, well, the cities are so dense and that's why we have such high numbers. Wrong. In places like Singapore, which is one of the densest cities in the world, if not the densest, it's actually not about density. It's about timing of shutdown, which is why I'm so critical about our governor, because if we had timed this better, we would have actually saved more lives regardless of or in spite of density. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't think about that. Yeah, I, I, I thought about density as being really a one of the more salient reasons for, for, for this as well. So I appreciate you clearing that up. So I wanted to like step back a little bit because yeah, I, I love this stuff. In, in the way that you're describing about the state's role in this whole pandemic, I can't help but think about federal and state. Like, how do you distinguish? Where do you draw the line? Who's responsible? We have such a storied past around federalism, separation of powers, state sort of acting as sovereign nations historically and kind of clinging to that from, with, with a sort of a state's rights narrative. And that is predominantly Republican and, and sort of the conservative South uh, uses that, you know, that narrative. Um, but like, where do you, you're, you're part of the state legislator, obviously, how do you, where do you draw the line between federal and state? Such a good question, because this was the first question that was posed to us in early March when we had to vote on a bill for COVID relief, like the first round of COVID relief of $40 million and make a decision as to whether we should give the governor emergency, additional emergency powers. The federal government historically before this administration has been responsible for things like federal relief in times of emergency under the Stafford Act um, has been responsible. And, and what do I mean by emergencies, tornadoes, hurricanes, oil spills, the whole run the whole gamut of things that you could think of as an emergency. That's what the federal government has come into a state for to, to help and provide relief through FEMA or through more direct resources that their branch of government can offer. The states, and you touched on it so perfectly, the constitutional powers of a state, a lot of them rest in the 10th Amendment, which is about state, the, the separation between state and federal and federalism. It's, it's the whole way that this country was born. And states inherently in that 10th Amendment have something called a police power, which is that a state is responsible for the health, the welfare, and the safety of its citizens, which if you think of a pandemic, that falls right underneath a police power. And so it means that a governor can issue things like and declare a state of emergency. A governor can, in that state of emergency, request funds down to that perhaps wouldn't have been allocated previously because the budget process must have appropriations, which means that things are in the budget line item by line item. Otherwise, we'd have just mass chaos when it comes to pulling money out of the budget that we have. So it means that you carve out this area where a governor can have additional power to do those things. Now, what I'll say is, is that now what we are functioning under in, in New York is an outsized executive who has power that is unprecedented, not with, without a, an ounce of hyper being hyperbolic. It's unprecedented because 
in the beginning of March, when we were voting on that $40 million initial relief for New York, that relief was tied to those emergency, those additional emergency powers, which I argued in the conference room with my colleagues that we didn't need to do that because we have the 10th Amendment, because we, he already inherently has that power and can use the power because of the, of the, of the United States Constitution. However, this governor has always found ways, especially in moments of emergency, which by the way, every executive leader, when I say executive, I mean a mayor, a governor, people at the heads of an executive branch of government, have always found emergencies as an opportunity or like a way in to grab more power. This governor is especially known for that. And so what, what has happened now as a result of that $40 million coupled with additional power is that this governor has the ability to issue directives. Now, when you hear the word directives, I originally thought of California and the Japanese internment camps. That is how the president actually was able to place the Japanese in internment camps during World War II because of the power of a directive, right? And so that was a red flag for me and it scared me. And what has resulted since then is a suspension of over 250 laws that the governor changed, a, an issuance of 65 executive orders, which have had zero, both of which have had zero legislative input. I think that the legislative process, especially policymaking, is sacred to the legislative branch. If we are not doing those things or weighing in to the process of that, we are rendered useless. What is the point of it? And what we have seen in this moment of crisis is a, an absolute go around of the legislature and a, a, a power grab that I think has hurt New Yorkers simply because legislators are so close to the people that they represent on the ground. We see the things that people need. There's food insecurity. We need to deal with people who are about to be evicted and on and on. And yet we have not even been included in any of the conversations. And that's not like, oh, we're left out. No, there are things that the governor has left out because of the lack of those conversations. And so it's really important that we tone down that power. And so I am on the brink of waiting for a bill number to actually pull back that power. I got a quick, simple one-on-one question, but what is the difference between a New York state senator and an assembly person? That's and you know, question. how do you interact together? That's a great question. And, and civics is like one of my favorite things because we don't teach it in classrooms because we've defunded it in the state of New York and across the country. So it's not just a New York thing. So in the state house in New York, we're bicameral, which means we have two houses and our capital is in Albany. The assembly is what's considered, and I, I don't, by the way, condone these terms, but this is what it's referred to as. The lower house is the assembly. The upper house is the Senate. It's kind of the same if you draw the line through to Congress. You have the Senate, like the upper house. Congress is the lower house, same thing. Um, it doesn't mean that they're less than. It just means that that's how it's seen in terms of the structure. The assembly and each assembly member represents a much smaller portion of a district. So they represent about a hundred and 40,000 people. The senators in New York represent about 330,000 people. So we have, we have more territory. We don't have really different powers when it comes to legislating or policymaking. But when we pass a bill, if you're a senator, you need an assembly sponsor. If you're an assembly person, you need a Senate sponsor. And that is in its most simple essence, 
the difference. I've read about you championing some bills, you know, in the press. What are some of those that I guess you're most proud of? And then also um, on the on the flip, what are what are bills that people should be most concerned about that are in front of uh, you know the local legislature? Okay, my most proud moment of 2019 was the passage of the sexual harassment legislation that was a result of the hearings that I chaired as the ethics chair uh, in Albany, which were, by the way, the first sexual harassment hearings in 27 years in the state of New York. As a result of those hearings, we passed the strongest sexual harassment protections, sexual harassment and discrimination protections in the country, which was, I could go into details about it, but what it basically does is it lowers the standard or the barrier for entry so that you could actually bring a case and not be thrown out, even when the behavior of someone is so egregious because we changed the standard, which used to be a standard of, I have to meet a severe or pervasive standard. That's a very high bar to, to, to clear. Another bill that I'm very excited about for the 2021 session is something called the Budget Equity Act. I am hyper obsessed with the balance of powers. We don't have co-equal branches of government when it comes to the budget process. In fact, we're one of only 50 states where the executive branch is actually has more power than this than the legislature, which is again, different than every other state, except California, where the legislature actually has more power than the executive. But I actually don't think that's a good thing. I think we need to have a balancing of powers. So the Budget Equity Act is a constitutional amendment to deal with this issue and to make sure that we actually are are making the budget process fair, because I think that that's what we owe to the people we represent. Also, revenue raisers, I'm sure you know, we are in a deficit in this state $15 billion, which probably will continue to grow as a result of COVID. And so raising revenue is the most, forget about everything else I've just said, it is the most important thing that we can do as legislators because every other executive and legislative body in a time of fiscal crisis from the Great Depression forward, whether they were Republican or Democrats, have raised revenue by taxing billionaires. We're not talking about taxing middle class or even ultra millionaires, although that is one of the proposals. We're talking about raising revenue on those who have actually made a profit during this pandemic. I want to lean into this actually a little bit because Biden's talking a lot about raising taxes on people making over $400,000. And $400,000, no matter where you live, is a lot of money. That's a great salary. I will give a a little slight pushback that if you live in Manhattan or if you live in San Francisco, $400,000 isn't $400,000 in Columbus, Ohio, or basically anywhere else. It's still a great life. I'm not going to say it's not. But once again, it's, it's like making, I don't know, half that in a lot of other locales, depending on obviously the life that you want to live. Do you think that that's the right number to start at overall? No, I think it's actually too low. And I, I actually agree with what you're saying. And I'll tell you why I represent the Bronx, which is the epicenter of the epicenter when it comes to COVID-19. It's the worst deaths, worst, worst infection rates in the whole country and arguably in the world. And I also represent Westchester County. And in Westchester County, the cost of living is much higher. And that is predominantly because the taxes are, oh, they are very high. And so if you have a family of four or five or six, and you make $400,000, it is a lot of money. Let's just be very clear. $400,000 is a lot of money. But when you start to carve away, okay, the mortgage, the tax payments, food, clothing, and the basic necessities with a family that's, you know, more than one person, 
that cost of living is actually, that's pretty much on par with other areas that even though the income might be much less, the cost of living is also less. $400,000 in Albany is like a like million dollars compared to $400,000 in Westchester. And I, let me just say one thing. It is a choice to live in Westchester. It's not like people are being forced to live there. So they could choose to live somewhere else. I am fully aware of that. But what I am trying to highlight is that there are places in New York, especially as you mentioned, Brian, I'm, Brian, Michael, <laughs> um, as the the epicenters of the, this pocket of wealth, which is so dense and so, so high. And so you have people who are making millions and millions of dollars, and yet their apartment perhaps will be a million dollars for a small little space. I mean, we've seen the cost of real estate go up significantly in Manhattan, in Westchester, in Long Island, in the Bronx, in Pelham Parkway in the Bronx, a row house that used to cost $100,000, if you go back even 20 years, maybe it was $80,000, are close to $400,000, $500,000. And we're not talking about a place with a yard or all of these amazing amenities. We're talking about a house on a street with a bunch of other people that are you know, sharing their resources together. At the same time, it's far away from the subway. I mean, we're, we're, there's so many different things that play in here, but the point I'm making is that the cost of living in New York has only gone up and income inequality has only been increased. And we have actually not thought about how we can close that gap or, or have a vision for the future of work. Like for example, embracing technology so that places like Rochester, which had Kodak and Xerox can actually have and bring new resources in when these industries change or go bankrupt or whatever happens because we haven't had the vision at this highest levels of our government to do that. And that's part of what makes this so dangerous. So that's, that's a long winded answer to your question, but those components really matter because if you don't have opportunity, but you're taxed at a, at a very, at, at a very unreasonable rate for your, for who you are and where you're living and, and what money you're making, you could actually, you know, find yourself in a very precarious situation and we don't and we cannot afford to have higher unemployment or more people who are facing evictions because in the Bronx and in Westchester, we have a lot of people on the brink of becoming evicted and those already have who are facing homelessness. Yeah. I mean, my, my gut, and we're going to move on to the last question here in a sec, because I know we have a hard stop, but my, my gut is that a million dollars is like the number that almost anyone can get behind. And 400,000 is like, we're going to say 400,000 because we know we're going to end up at a million or a little bit higher, but we have to start at a number low enough. So when we, we move to the middle, we get closer, but that's just my gut. Last question I wanted to bring up was you just tweeted the other day, it might've been even yesterday, Dems who refuse to go on the offensive can walk out the door. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. I think we know what that all is referring to, but maybe we'll, we'll let you uh, hear it in your words. I would be happy to. Also, the reason I said Brian, I have, I don't know if I ever told you this. I have a friend, Brian Farber, <laughs> too. So I, Whoa, I, I know my, hey. my brain, sir, my brain's just like, like recircuited itself. <laughs> hey, there can only be one. This, this <laughs> well, there's is, only one Farber. I'm going to have to meet him now. <laughs> you let's get him on the pod. Let's get this Brian on the pod. <laughs> he's not as he's not as fun as Michael Farber. Let's just put it that way. There we go. There we go. <laughs> uh, what I mean is this: I have seen in just a very short period of time a lot of Democrats 
be afraid to wield power. And what it has equaled, what, what the result of that has meant are things like not investing or not, not being brave enough to demand that we sit at that budget table until we fund NYCHA. Not think about how, again, what, how the future of work looks. Not think about challenging the governor's power. Not think about how we can hold accountable those abusive actors inside of our government, but instead have been quiet because they don't want to, you know, rock the boat too much or be too bold or, or push the door to, or push the, the limits too much. I think the reason that I said that is because I'm feeling very frustrated, like a lot of people across the country. I think a lot of Democrats are feeling frustrated, predominantly um, with regard to the federal leadership. And here is why. I am 34 years old. And 30 years ago, the Republicans started this strategy of down up, fill all the seats at the local level, all the way up to where the government plan. And what that has meant was a 30-year plan of placing Republicans in positions like water board and school board and dog catcher and local councils and mayor positions and the U.S. Senate and the Assembly and, and, and the Senate in the state houses. And they have been doing this plan. And yet the Democrats, for some reason, continue to have to have played defense. They didn't get turned on to the fact that this plan was happening and as a result, didn't plan in and of themselves. And if you think back 30 years ago, or even 20 years ago, to the year 2000, when we had the Bush v. Gore presidential race and Supreme Court case, the tactics that the GOP is using today, that we are all outraged on an hourly basis about, they were using 20 years ago. So if you were in government 20 years ago at any level of government, you would have seen these tactics and therefore been put on notice. The fact that we are in this position, I do absolutely hold accountable some of the Democrats that are already in power who are not doing enough. And so again, we're in a moment that is, that is absolutely unprecedented. We are in a moment that is urgent, whether it's related to making sure we don't have a Supreme Court that is six to three, six conservative justices to three liberal justices, whether it's making sure we have a majority in the U.S. Senate. But if we don't do something and start to actually use our power, we will absolutely not be successful and we will absolutely not be able to tackle the big issues like climate change. We are still in this positioning of whether it's real. That is frustrating to most people who understand that it is real. And so anybody who prevents us from making progress and doing what is necessary has to go because they're putting us all at risk. Last question. And I would just say, quick point to um, your answer is, one thing that the Republican side has that we do not is a bazooka of white grievance and a, a, a history of minority rule, which is, which is um, pretty, pretty powerful. But I, I don't want to open a can of worms. But I was, last question, are you running for governor in 2022? Can we get breaking news? Are you on the offensive big time? That's a very good question. Um, I'm not currently running for governor in 2022, but I am thinking about what is next. And that is, again, because of the fact that I don't see people around me leading. And I yesterday had this idea in my mind, and I'm sure other people have thought it, which is that 
just because somebody has a title in front of their name that says something like senator, assembly member, even CEO, doesn't mean they're actually leading because to lead is a verb. It's not a noun. And that means that they need to be doing things. And 2021 will define and determine probably what I decide to do next. But I'll tell you right now, we are on this earth for a split second, like the snap of a finger. So I have the philosophy of you swing big no matter what, because why not? Especially if you are rooted in what you believe to be principles that can lead us into the future. So that is how I'm thinking. That is how I'm learning. That's how I'm listening. That's what I'm doing to get ready, even if I don't have to jump in, if, if, I, if I decide to. That is how I am playing this moment out. But stay tuned. And stay, Swing big. Stay tuned, we will. Swing big. I like that. I love it. Well, thank you so much, <laughs> New York State Senator Alessandro Biaggi. Pleasure having you on. We we'll hope to have you back. And yeah, well, uh, stay tuned, everyone, for next week. We've got uh, six days. 